You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judd? I have my reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of. Something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. Hello, everyone. This is Annie Rose Malamut, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Jello. And I'm coming at you today from Portland, Maine, with my very good friend, Mercedes, who was my roommate for all of college. Hi, Mercedes Lake. Hey, Annie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good to be here with you again in my house. <laughs> so we're in Mercedes' kitchen, uh, and we're going to be talking today about Pet Cemetery because... Pet Cemetery, you've seen it, I'm sure, and it's set in Maine, and we're here in Maine. Yeah, for uh, for those of you who aren't in my kitchen right now, I mean, this is a pretty Maine spot. There's a lot of dried flowers and a bird feeder, and it's uh, pretty salty in here, so it's right place, right time, I think, to talk about Pet Cemetery. It's the perfect time. And Mercedes, before we get into talking about Pet Cemetery, do you want to tell the listeners who you are, what you're about? Oh, man, I've been waiting for someone to ask me that for 29 years. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I'm a playwright, screenwriter. Uh, I love Stephen King movies, actually, because I think it's a really interesting sort of mutation of how any one of his stories becomes a screenplay. Uh, but I guess for the sake of this podcast, too, I'm a, I'm a salty Mainer. Uh, I moved here about seven months ago, and I'm, I'm never leaving. This is it. Yeah, and you in addition to being a salty Mainer, are basically just generally a salty New Englander. Oh, yeah. No, I lived on, uh, I lived in the Midwest for five years, kind of trying to pretend that I wasn't like an East Coast snob and then realized, I think, three months in that, yeah, I am and it's okay. <laughs> I gave myself permission for that. And you're from Vermont, so you're a true New Englander. Yeah, I still got my Vermont plates on my Subaru. So. Yeah. <laughs> and you've lived in Western Massachusetts and now in Maine, which is so beautiful. And you moved from Chicago, which is also apt because the family in Pet Cemetery moved from Chicago to Maine. Yeah, and you know, I've watched this movie, so I would feel like Pet Cemetery is maybe my third most watched movie after Death to Smoochie and First Wives Club. So if <laughs> it's a great list. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm very fluent in a film. Um, <laughs> 
But yeah, it was so interesting kind of on this rewatch realizing that uh, the journey the journey of the Creed family is much like my own journey, uh, except I don't have a stupid family to worry about. <laughs> I'm really excited to do this movie. I I mean, oh, here on Girls, Guts, and Giallo, we talk about not just horror, but generally subversive films. And I do think that this is a subversive horror film in many ways. Oh, yeah. Well, so I feel like the one of the cardinal rules of horror, right, is that you don't kill kids or pets. This movie totally turns that on its head because you uh, you can kill kids, kids and pets. You just can't bring them back to life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's really an interesting movie to talk about and also... You know, it's in fucking Maine. And I haven't talked about a Stephen King movie yet. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. I'm so glad I can be your first. Yeah. <laughs> so it's exciting. Uh, the movie is uh, came out in 1989. Directed by Mary Lambert. So it's directed by a woman, which is unusual. Uh, becoming less and less unusual, but unusual, especially for, for this For 1989. Yeah. yeah, for 1989 and especially for horror and it was the screenplay was written by Stephen King, who of course also wrote the book from 1983. And the title, Pet Cemetery, because it's spelled with an S, is an example of what I found out is called sensational spelling, which is the deliberate spelling of a word in an incorrect or sensational way to make a point. What was the point? I guess the point is that it's children who made this cemetery, so children think cemetery is spelled with an S. Stephen King doesn't think very highly of children. <laughs> he, he walked into this being like, I want you to think children are really dumb and don't know how to spell. Yeah, I think, but it also kind of adds to the creep factor, right? Because it's kind of like this innocent, childish thing. Uh, the film rights were originally sold to George A. Romero. They wanted him oh. to direct it, which makes a lot of sense because it's a kind of zombie movie. But he pulled out of the production because he's working on another film. But development executive Lindsay Doran, also a woman, uh, loved the finished script and advocated for it to be made by Embassy Pictures and then at Paramount Pictures after she became vice president of production there in 1985. So I feel like that has to be instrumental in Mary Lambert being the director. Yeah, this is this is like this is great to know. Uh, it only you know you love something so much, and then you don't think you can love it anymore, and then you do. Exactly. Uh, she was told each time that there was no more demand for Stephen King movies after the slew of adaptations from his novels released in the early '80s, because Stephen King had a lot of movies come out in the '80s, and it was only during the 1988 Writers Guild of America strike that Paramount reconsidered because the studio was facing a shortage of new productions for 1989 release. I'm glad that in the 80s it was like writer strikes led to more Keith Stephen King movies and then like... <laughs> yeah, they were like, Stephen King's never gonna strike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just go find him in his backyard in May. Yeah, exactly. Churning out another movie. <laughs> uh, his The script for Stephen King's script for his Pet Cemetery. I think it's interesting that he also wrote the script. And I'm gonna assume that he writes a lot of the scripts for his movies. Yeah, though it would be hilarious to see like Stephen King's scripts of other people's novels. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, it was finished and ready to go. So uh, Doran, Lindsay Doran, gave the green light to obtain the rights for Paramount and start production. King, part of the stipulation was that he had a final say on who the director was. 
Um, and he met with the studio's first choice, of course, which is Mary Lambert. And she impressed him with her enthusiasm for his books and her commitment to stay faithful to the novel, which secured her the job. So basically she sucked up hardcore <laughs> to him. <laughs> which, you know, real. He also stipulated that when selling the rights that Pet Cemetery had to be shot in Maine. <laughs> Stephen King is a lifelong Mainer. Uh, the story was set there, and he wrote the screenplay, so it had to be shot in Maine. The production was based out of Ellsworth, Maine. Oh, I know Ellsworth. And the auditions were held at the Grand Theater in Ellsworth. That's a creepy sentence. Yeah. Where several hundred locals auditioned to be extras for small spoken roles. <laughs> oh my gosh, could you imagine the town to-do leading up to that? I... God. The carriages are parked. Stephen King's coming to town. Yeah, exactly. I just imagine all these like Mainers at this giant theater. Like honestly, the Mainers who auditioned were probably just standing outside the theater when he showed up. Like yeah, totally. Just ripping butts. <laughs> uh, initially, oh, King was himself very involved in the filming process and consulting with Lambert frequently on her ideas for the story. And, uh, yeah, so he was, like, part of the production. So he was there, like, pretty much every day when it was filming. And initially, Paramount executives wanted a pair of twins to play the role of Gage, which was more cost-effective option. However, Lambert was very impressed with three-year-old Miko Hughes, <laughs> whom she felt was a natural talent, and she lobbied the studio to accept her choice. I mean, if you guys haven't seen this movie, Miko Hughes is a cute kid. He's actually one of the best actors in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> he literally is. Like, yeah, it's like if you were looking for a reason to like kids, you would like see Miko. And he's like one, like a one foot tall child that's only blue eyes. Yeah. And he's like. I want to play with you, Daddy. I want to play with you too, Miko. <laughs> she also faced resistance from executives over her choice to cast Fred Gwynn, whom the studio believed audience wouldn't take seriously because of his fame as Herman Munster, which is really fucking stupid. Yeah. Because it's a horror movie. Yeah. Also, you know, uh, upon rewatching this movie, and we might circle back to this later, but Fred Gwynn in this movie can get it. <laughs> Judd Crandall can get it. Yeah, I broke the silence on that one. I was like, Judd is hot. Judd's really hot. Fred Gwynn, more like Fred, get it in. <laughs> I mean, Fred Gwynn is a perfect choice for this movie. Yeah, and I mean, I think that he, you know, there's like, you know, so I was born in 1990, so a year before this movie, or a year after this movie came out, and... You know, so I grew up with kind of like these stereotypes of horror movies and, and Judd Crandall really is like the harbinger and really introduces the concept of like the New England harbinger. After first auditioning girls for the role of Zelda, the, the sister with spinal meningitis, Lambert changed course and ended up casting Andrew Hubastek in the role because she felt having a grown man play the role of a teenage girl with spinal meningitis made the character more frightening. Okay, okay, I'm flipping out right now. So I, I was recently a part of a really bad community theater project in Freeport, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I worked with Andrew Hubastek. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah guys small town small town oh my god what's he like he's a freak yeah. 
this is another thing that's kind of interesting because I didn't know this until I did some research on the film that it was that Zelda was played by a man. And the fact that they thought that made it more frightening is at best lightly transphobic. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that is that's it's fucked up, man. Yeah, it's a fucked up thing to think. Yeah. So, and I'm not even going to try to justify that one. I don't think that in any way makes it more frightening. I don't really know what they were talking about. Yeah, I think the spinal meningitis was pretty frightening on its yeah. own. I mean, that the concept of it is frightening enough. Uh, so, Pet Cemetery was director Mary Lambert's second feature film. She was better known for her music video work. She directed the Like a Prayer video and the Material Girl video. So through her work in the music industry, she was friends with the Ramones, who were one of Stephen King's favorite bands. (laughs) Of course they are! (laughs) And she approached them about recording a song for the film, and they agreed to write and perform Pet Cemetery, which is featured in the closing credits. Uh, At the time when the movie came out, mainstream critics did not take to it, and they panned it and said it was dull. Because uh, they have no taste. Because they have no taste. But however, horror critics loved it with both Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central, giving it a four out of five. And I didn't know this, so I'm a bad, bad horror fan, but there is a documentary that came out about Pet Cemetery that premiered in 2014 and was released in January 2017 called Unearth and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm to the point where I have not even seen a preview of the remake. I just, uh, I just pretend it doesn't exist. So it's pretty different than the original in that it's not the little boy who dies. It's actually the daughter. And she comes back for kind of a more extended period of time and uh, has lines because she's, you know, can speak and verbalize and all of that stuff. And uh, I guess the only thing I did kind of like more was that Rachel, the the mother in the story, her background is explored a bit more, and you get more into why her husband, Lewis, has friction with her parents and all that stuff. So that's kind of interesting. And then at the end, the, it, it, the ending is much less ambiguous. Uh, the They all become zombies, <laughs> the whole family. <laughs> So that's like that's a weird nuclear family like expectation. Yeah. If, I don't know. I like as someone who's kind of from like a less traditional family, like, you know, if your mom and your dad want to become zombies, like you kind of got to let them go at some point. <laughs> Do you think that the creeds just had like empty nest syndrome? <laughs> yeah, they had empty nest syndrome. They needed to convert their children into zombies. So is there anything else you wanted to say about the background of the movie? Um, no, I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, again, um, I will stand by that Pet Cemetery 2019 does not exist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, um, Pet Cemetery, this is Pet Cemetery 2019 erasure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is actually my political agenda. That's yeah. the only reason why I'm on the podcast. Yeah, we don't believe in it. So the movie opens, it's such a classic 80s horror movie in so many ways. And I love I love all horror, but I particularly will always have a deep love for 80s horror. And it opens with shots of the Pet Cemetery, which is super creepy, and voiceovers of children, creepy horror movie children, uh, talking about their 
departed pets. Yeah, you learn immediately that children cannot build crosses. <laughs> really janky crosses. They're really, yeah, not smart kids in this movie. <laughs> I mean, that's why their pets died. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to get away from them. <laughs> yeah, it's a, there's also a pretty diverse uh, range of pets. Uh, yeah, there's goldfish. There's goldfish, there's lizards, there's dogs, there's cats. This is like a proverbial uh, after the death of Noah's Ark uh, <laughs> in the Creed's backyard. Yeah, birds. Empty bird cages. But, you know, just from, like, a New England perspective, it is actually really interesting, um, sort of the concept of, like, the backyard cemetery that's actually kind of a huge thing here. I have a friend whose family owns a farm, and by just kind of virtue of them having a lot of pets and land, and he was telling me that, like, they were looking at the deed uh, to the land, and there was, like, no one sort of who had owned it before their family, and they still found a cemetery just in their backyard. They just don't know where it came from or, oh, like, cool. who it belonged to. So, yeah, you can actually, yeah, uh, in the woods of Maine, you can stumble upon a cemetery. Yeah, there's so many fucking cemeteries in New England, which is part of why I love it. It's our legacy. <laughs> it's our legacy of Puritanism. <laughs> yeah, New England is the spookiest place on Earth. I don't care what anyone says. It's Warped me. Yeah, it's really spooky here. So there's a there immediately there's like a harbinger because one of the like the second shot of the movie is a semi truck racing down the road and we see this perfect white nuclear family pulling up to this quaint main house with a, a fucking bumper sticker that says have you hugged your enemy today <laughs> I would key that car <laughs> yeah, seriously and I think, like, they get out of the car and they're surveying their new home. And I think in this moment, it's almost purposely corny to emphasize the oncoming horror of the situation. Yeah, there's a little Easter egg, too, for the you know for the audience where uh, Lewis, uh, the father, turns to his wife and says, do you like this house? As in, you have not seen the house that I bought. And she's like, I love it. And for some reason, it's just, like, a pretty standard New England farmhouse and the only get is that there's just semi-trucks blasting through it. That's it! (laughs) Yeah, there's a, the road in this movie is only semi-trucks going a hundred miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah, like whipping down the highway. Uh, Ellie is the worst. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should just do a whole family breakdown of how toxic this family is. Yeah, so there's Lewis Creed. Who, this actor does not emote the entire movie. Uh, and I wonder if that was a choice. I like. I keep thinking about whether or not that was a choice or bad acting or a weird written thing. Like, I want to know, you know, where where this kind of mutation came from because Lewis doesn't smile. No, and he's also very like typical white American good looking dude. Well, he's a Stephen King cool guy. Yeah, and, as you were saying last night. Yeah. So. The thing that I love about Stephen King movies is when there is the Stephen King cool guy. Uh, it's when Stephen King writes a version of himself that, like, listens to rock music. <laughs> well, he does. He loves the Ramones. Yeah, it's no. His favorite band. And maybe Stephen King, like, thinks that he's the cool guy, too, because it's always... You see that a lot in, like, the original It, too. Uh, Bill's character, where it's just, like, the Stephen King glasses and, like, maybe a leather jacket and, like, a very low ponytail. <laughs> And it's it's like, this guy has Mountain Dew for breakfast. (laughs) He loves listening to The Boss. Yeah. And he drives a car. Yeah, I mean, Stephen King is definitely one of those white men who writes himself into all of his films and uh, has 
he he uses like the the other titular white male characters to sort of project his own stuff onto them like misery um paul sheldon is stephen king basically so yeah he does that a lot and they say that women do that so that's really funny (laughs) yeah it's so funny because basically as we kind of deep more into the family like Every member of this family is Stephen King. Yes. Well, Rachel, then there's the wife, Rachel, who's kind of like a short-haired 80s power bitch. Yeah, just someone who looks like they have been only starting coke for the last, like, 20 years until they had to film this movie. Yes, her blush is high on her cheekbones. And she's got power suits on, even though it appears she appears not to have a job. No, <laughs> she has an abundance of power well, suits. Well, she's teaching Ellie the importance of uh, communicating through clothing. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Ellie. And then Gage, Miko Hughes, who is wonderful. Who's the best. Yeah. The only good member of the family, who's also not Stephen King. Yes, not Stephen King. Do you think Ellie is Stephen King? Oh, I think Ellie is totally Stephen King. And we'll get into more of that later, but... Her thoughts on God, it's like... Uh, oh, God, yeah. It's amazing to look at, like, a, what, like, seven-year-old girl and hear her espouse the values of a 50-year-old coke addict. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so immediately Ellie is the worst and falls off a tire swing and screams in a horrible manner. And Gage has his first run-in with the semi-truck where he almost wanders into the road, but he's rescued by Fred Gwynn, a.k.a. Judd Crandall, the heartthrob of Pet Cemetery. Judd is the best character. He's a salty old Mainer. He's the only person who I feel like is totally disconnected from Stephen King. It's like, and in terms of like Stephen King um, characters, I feel like he's like a lot more imaginative outside of like the character that is Stephen King and then the monsters. Um, And it's, Judd always will have like a special place in my heart because it's like, I have members of my family that look and act and you know, kind of doing that thing. Like, it's uh, what happens when someone's really comfortable sitting on their porch. Yeah, he's comfortable sitting on his porch. He smokes, like, five packs of cigarettes a day. Oh, God, that (laughs) musk. (laughs) And he has the most epic main accent ever committed to film. Soil of a man, Todd. Estonia. Yeah, he's a man who has never pronounced an R. (laughs) Not because, uh, you know... Not because he's just so relaxed. Yeah. He just has time to let the sentence wander. I love Judd Crandall. I want him to be my neighbor. Like, he's the best. Yeah. So my, this is kind of, this is like a little fun sidetrack. My grandmother um, is 89 and has uh, been single, I guess. We lost my grandfather about 14 years ago. And she's kind of got a new lease on life. And part of that is that she has like, 12 old men in her small Vermont town who just take care of her. I love that. At any point. So it's like she has like one who like does her lawn and then like one who brings her like fish dinners on Friday and one who like buys her coffee. And Judd is like, yeah, he's like the old man you want to like come and like bring you a fish dinner and then take like rake your leaves and be like, I'm leaving now. Totally, totally. So Lewis Creed is going to be the new doctor at the college and, uh, this is also, we find, we find that we're like, oh, there's one doctor in college? And what college is it? <laughs> and this is also the point where Judd looks off ominously into the woods. And there's some scary music that plays. Ellie sleeps uh, and is obsessed with this mean-ass cat named Church that they have. Oh, this great horrible cat. cat. Yeah, <laughs> horrible, horrible cat. 
And Lewis at night when church is, when he's, when he's put Ellie in church to bed, he gazes out at the trail that leads into the woods. And he's also scared by church who pops up at him. This is another harbinger for the movie. And while he's doing this, after after he gazes into the woods, he uh, crosses the street and he has a, a, a nice beer with Judd. Yeah, you know, just a nice porch beer as we do in New England. Yes. Um, but how, okay, I want to backtrack a little bit here. How do you feel about the choice of a gray cat over a black cat? I think it was really smart because I think a black cat would be really stereotypical. Um, I wonder if it had to do with the book like I read the book in high school fun fact I read the book in high school so I ran away from her home and I was grounded for two months and I wasn't allowed to use the computer so I read like every Stephen King book and I read Pet Cemetery. I for so I've, it's been a long time since I read it so I don't remember exactly but it might have been that the cat is gray in the book also and Stephen King you know was obsessed with making this movie really true to the book um it could also do be uh, have something to do with the the cat actor, the character, the character. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, but I do. I prefer that choice. Yeah, no, he was definitely. I mean, it's like again in terms of like subversion of the the genre, the subversion of the tropes. Like this movie kind of just delivers over and over again, and in, in really smart ways, and. Church is like pretty, I guess, normal looking, but is insanely spooky. Like, yeah. you know, when you see a cat and you just like know he wants That's to a give mean you mean ass cat. He wants to give you just one sharp claw on the foot. Yeah. <laughs> just a cat with a mean visage. <laughs> just like not like yeah, a cuddly cat. <laughs> yeah, the cat's a criminal. <laughs> Cat is a criminal. Judd speaks entirely in old wise proverbs. Like they're talking about church and how he should get fixed so he doesn't wander out into the road. And uh, Judd says, a fixed cat does a wander. Don't tend to wander. Exactly. (laughs) You fix a cat. He stays at home, you see, and he watches the window and he knows what goes on. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much how Judd speaks the entire movie. It makes no like I like we should unpack more of this later, but yeah, Judd or Judd has like a ton of just like drunken New England proverbs. Yeah, he speaks that's all that's he speaks in in verse. <laughs> pretty much. Uh the family the next day walks the trail to the pet cemetery with Judd because he wants to show them the pet cemetery, much like you showed me the pet cemetery. <laughs> and uh Ellie asks what the sign says, and at this point we were like, she can't read. Yeah, yeah. She's like speaks, eight. She speaks in full sentences. <laughs> <laughs> but she can't read the sign. <laughs> Uh, mom doesn't like the pet cemetery. Rachel does not like the pet cemetery. She feels a bad vibe there. And Judge shows the grave of his dog that died in 1924. And he asks Ellie if she knows what a graveyard is. And he says, it's a place where the dead speak. Not literally, but their stones speak. And it's a place yes. of rest and a place of speaking. Yeah, in his like 20 minute long sentence, he makes sure to clarify, they don't literally speak here. (laughs) (laughs) And later that night, because they've been talking about death and pets dying, Ellie is concerned that Church will die. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah, again, this is like, this is the first time we see Ellie kind of have like a 50 year old man's freak out about God. Yeah. Because yeah, Ellie 
it, like a big theme in this movie is kind of like Ellie discovering her faith or maybe lack thereof. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's like, again, it's like I, you think about like Stephen King's brain and like what he's trying to say and what got lost from like the translation of the novel to the film. And I feel like if I had a hundred pages, he probably explains what that journey was like, but we don't. So Ellie just comes in the room and is like, why does God kill animals? I don't like him very much. Yeah, she's pissed. The next day, also at breakfast, she says, I don't want church to get his nuts cut, daddy. Oh, Charming we, kid. We also forgot about Missy. Okay, so <laughs> another thing that happens, even though, again, I've seen this movie hundreds of times, I there's always a character I forget about. This time it was Missy. Yeah, Missy Dandridge, who has a moment with Rachel. She's so she's the 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 maid that they've hired, basically. Yeah. So this like kind of rich Chicago family has moved into this working class main town and immediately like hire one of the local women to be a maid. Yeah, where do they meet Missy? She yeah. doesn't seem like she gets out very much. <laughs> Totally. And she has, she's a real fucking downer. Yeah. And she has this moment with Rachel where she's like, always thought we were real lucky to marry a doctor. <laughs> she's like, I got these stomach pains. It'd be so great that in the, if, if they ever remake Pet Cemetery, and maybe they will someday, <laughs> if they took Missy in a whole new direction, because this Missy is, like, basically a walking shawl. Like, <laughs> she's just so hunched. She's so... She, like, basically walks bended in half. Yeah. And she's like, my stomach, my stomach. Yeah. And it would be so great if, if they ever remade Pet Cemetery and they gave Missy Tandridge a makeover. Oh, my God. And, like, a hot maid. <laughs> gave her, like, a French maid costume. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, them in a mall, like, being like, mm-mm, not that costume. Not that costume, Missy. And she's like, my stomach pains are gone. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's one of the characters, Missy. And uh, when Ellie says she doesn't want Church to get his nuts cut, she says Missy Dandridge told her that. Uh, in LA. They're taking a cat to get his nuts cut. Yeah. <laughs> totally see her doing that, to be honest. Lewis and Rachel have a lot of tension throughout the whole movie around what to tell Ellie and when about the concept of death. So this is when I have made my first note of my first major theme in the movie, which you kind of lightly touched on, which is faith and death. And is there a God? And that's kind of the, that's the running theme through Pet Cemetery, and even more so in the book. And yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of tension between those two characters around what faith and God is to them individually. It's almost as if they've never even spoken about it. Yeah. It's almost like this family met when they moved into this house. Yes, together. they materialized <laughs> on the lawn. <laughs> and things only got worse from there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, honestly, you know, kind of, like, moving a little outward from that, I think that the idea of, like, I mean, like, the idea of, like, man versus God or faith versus God is kind of a huge thing in New England because of, uh, because of like, the Puritans, right? Like, um, and, you know, a, a thing that, like, I think makes New England so spooky is, like, as much as we try to pretend, we haven't moved past, like, our puritanical roots, Um so much so that everyone here is, like, a drunk, but uh, they they don't, like, you can't buy liquor on, like, Sundays mm -hmm. in a lot of places. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, that's a really good point. And I feel like it's also something that Stephen King explores a lot in his work, 
just like the concept of faith. I would be interested to know if Stephen King is a religious person. Well, actually, and I've got him on the line. And <laughs> Let's call him up. <laughs> Let's call him up. I'm sure he's written about it or something. I follow him on Twitter. <laughs> I haven't seen him say anything such, but um, you would think that he wouldn't be, but, you know, who knows, honestly. So Lewis and Missy have a moment where Missy turns down Lewis's free medical advice about her <laughs> agonies. <laughs> Yeah, basically, Lewis is like, please let me give you free health care. <laughs> 1989, right? <laughs> um, and Missy scowls at him and runs in the opposite direction. But that's also very New England, because it's like, I'll just fucking deal with it. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, that's like, honestly, especially like kind of coming out of the Midwest, that's something that I've really grown to love here, um, is that everyone is salty and everyone is singular, but there's also like this weird kind of tension or sense of community uh, like the first, when I first moved into my apartment, I bought a couch off of, uh, like Wayfair and was, uh, trying to like move it up the stairs by myself. And this, like, this like super tiny girl in a car hat came up to me and she's like, do you need help? And I was like, so mind blown from that. Uh, cause I lived in Chicago for five years and everyone was really friendly, but no one like interacted with me in a way that felt neighborly, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and of course I lied and told her I didn't and moved the couch upstairs by myself, but it was just like this moment of like, oh yeah, like everyone like kind of looks like one that they want to be left alone, but like, we'll show up. Yeah. Like, like Judd. <laughs> just like Judd Crandall. And then we get immediate cut to a bloody battered body. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's Doc's first day at the job and there's already a student that's been hit by a car and his when he was riding his bicycle and his brain is all exposed. There's some really great practical effects. Oh yeah. He dies pretty immediately and Lewis is alone with the body and he, you know, he closes his eyes, but then he immediately in a very jump scare kind of way comes back to life for a second. And he says, the soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. Someone get this corpse a glass of water. <laughs> And Lewis is like, how do you know my name? And then he says, I'll come to you. And he dies for real. Yeah, we got a stage four clinger here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's obviously very unsettling. (laughs) Lewis wakes up abruptly that night in the middle of the night to that corpse of the young man in his bedroom, haunting him and telling him to come follow him. We, I also asked the question, why is he sleeping in his scrubs? I guess if he's on call. Yeah. You know, honestly, like, Lewis is so deadpan and weird in this movie that any choice that they they, they would have made about him, I would have been like, all right, well, I guess that's the new rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This man sleeps in the scrubs. Great. Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing I can think of is that he's on call. But, like, how on call does he really have to be in this small main town? Yeah. <laughs> at the college. Yeah, at the college. There's the local a local college. <laughs> There's a lot of college runners out that night, I guess. Yeah. Maybe I am ignorant and I just don't know what I'm talking about. That's also possible. So he also said, the corpse says to Lewis, I'm helping you, Lewis, because you helped me. And he leads him down the trail to the pet cemetery and says, just like Judd said, this is the place where the dead speak. And also, you know, kind of like revisiting the scene where Lewis helps him. Lewis really is like a white dude who gets rewarded for doing the least. Like when Pascal comes into the hospital, he, uh, he basically just 
checks his heartbeat and he's like look guys we do have to check the heartbeat and then everyone <laughs> runs out of the room and then Pasco is like I owe you forever yeah that's a good point I mean what did he really do to try to help him I mean he he did like he did try to resuscitate him but it was he was far gone at that point and it's also his job it's his job that's what he's paid to do and the ghost warns Liz, because we don't know yet that his name is Pascal, but we know that his name is yeah. Pascal. And he go, the ghost warns Lewis to not go on to the place where the dead walk and points to the, the path beyond, which is glowing a very creepy blue. Yeah, yeah. So the pet cemetery where the dead talk. <laughs> uh, the place beyond where the dead walk. Yes. Where do the dead go to get down? Yeah, where, where do they go to boogie? Where do the dead go to boogie? <laughs> Pet Cemetery 2. Pet Cemetery 2, boogie, boogie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also says the barrier was not meant to be crossed. The ground beyond is sour. Uh, so that's another theme of the movie is the ground being sour. I wonder if the novelization that like there is like a giant milk spill on the ground. <laughs> it's just literally sour. <laughs> The other thing I was going to talk about here was, like, Lewis's trauma, basically, of, like, seeing people die as part mm. of his job. And this, to me, it's almost like a, it's almost like a PTSD vision. <laughs> like, he's being haunted by this person that he f- tried to save and could not save. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> Lewis is increasingly very haunted in this movie. Yeah, it's hard to tell because his uh, expression is so deadpan. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I mean, I guess if I was going to put, like, feelings on it, yeah, I mean, that would be a really bad first day of work, huh? Totally. So Lewis wakes up the next morning and his feet are covered in dirt and he's back in bed. So he, But he's, it's unsettling because it's not, he knows it's not a dream. He actually went outside and maybe thinks he was sleepwalking and maybe doesn't really think anything of it because he knows he's traumatized and that he's having bad dreams because of, like, this shit that happens to him. So some time passes by, which we know because Ellie changes the pumpkin in the window to a turkey. (laughs) And uh, Rachel is leaving Lewis alone to go see her parents for Thanksgiving, and this is the scene where we find out that Lewis and Rachel's parents do not get along. And it's very mysterious. Yeah, and you know, in terms of just like what this movie lacks that another version could have done uh, if it existed, uh, <laughs> and uh, like in terms of the family background, like this is another kind of great Stephen King writing Stephen King moment because, like, I'm sure in the novel he was like, yes, this totally makes sense and this is what would have happened, but we don't get that. So it becomes, like, more disarming because we don't know, like, if it's, like, Lewis or the family or, like, what's in the water here. All we know is that, like, we cut to this parent's house where they're just having Thanksgiving dinner around a telephone, basically, for Lewis to call. And all that decorates their house is, like, oil paintings. Yeah, the creepiest house ever. Yeah. And Judd calls Lewis home alone to say that he's found church dead by the side of the road. And Judd leads Lewis to the pet cemetery, but he doesn't have him buried church in the regular pet cemetery. He leads him to the path beyond through this mysterious section, which you have to reach only through this treacherous path. Yeah. And, you know, for two grown adult men, like this is really, I feel like a character flaw in Judd who has maybe seen everything and is just three inches thick of salt at this point in his life. Like, 
is just aghast that this child would lose a pet. Like, Yeah, he's, he doesn't, he, I mean, so Judd is taken to Ellie for some God known reason. Yeah. And he doesn't want, but this is the other thing is that another big theme in this movie, which we'll talk about more in depth is the concept of free will. And we don't know in this movie if the, the actions of the characters are driven by their own free will or if this burial ground has bewitched them mm. and is making them do these things. So that's the other thing is like, is Judd being seduced by this burial ground into pushing this chain of events forward? So there's a lot of concepts here of free will, agency, and also destiny and faith. So I, I, I wrestle with that if, like, Judge, Judd actually did that of his own accord or not. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. And that kind of, in terms of, like, New England history really ties into another theme that, um, that people from this part of the world think about a lot, I guess, is, like, man versus land or, like, land's, like, control over man. Mm, um, and the sublime. And the sublime. Oh, man. Yeah, all mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't know. So I was reading these like town hall transcripts from Vermont from like the uh like the early 19th century and a big thing about Vermont is like the land is kind of unfarmable in a lot of places like it's all rocks. Um so people who moved there to like farm actually just had to raise sheep. Um and then they were starving because they they couldn't grow food, so that's why kind of a lot of Vermonters left for the west. And then the people who were left in Vermont had this giant town hall meeting where a bunch of drunk men declared that the people who moved out west were basically uh, were weak and cowardly and wrong for chasing something easier or more fruitful. And that the people who stayed were going to be the ones who, like, learned how to live with the land, like this, like, cruel, unforgiving land. Um, and a big thing that I, I share with a lot of my friends here is that, like, the land is so much bigger than any of us. Like there's no way for us to kind of manage or tame this land. You kind of just have to figure out where you fit into it. Mm. And I think like in the idea of like the beyond, like we see that a lot, like the land is so much bigger than these two men and it can control them and control their lives and control their fate uh, in a way that they kind of just need to learn how to live around. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And so he leads him up to this treacherous path that, that he and Fred Gwynn, Judd, has no problem traversing. This 90-year-old man just jumps on top of a mountain, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, he's in such good shape. He smokes 100 cigarette butts while he's climbing the mountain. Yeah, exactly. And it's pretty amazing. So and when he when he get there, they see this ritualistic burial ground where there are these rocks in a very specific formation. And... Uh, Judd tells him that this is the Micmac Indian burial ground. And I have another note here that this is racist. Yes. <laughs> this, so there's a theme in horror movies, uh, in particular, very racist against indigenous people. And there, there's never actually any real indigenous people in the stories. It's just the specter of indigenous people. And a lot of theorists, cultural writers have, have written about this and I will link to articles in my Patreon and my newsletter for y'all. Uh, cause I do need, I, I do need to find some specific, I I've read it before, but I need to unearth those articles. Um, and basically the, the writing here is that it, 
the indigenous spirituality is used as a point of fear and of mystery and, uh, and yeah, basically just evil. And it's almost as if these settlers, these colonial settlers know the wrongs of their ancestors and they fear the retaliation of that and the revenge. So, which I think is why Indian burial grounds are such a common theme in horror movies. Yeah. I don't know if this like actually plays into the story at all, but it's also Thanksgiving. Uh, no, I think it does implicitly. Yeah. And it, it, like you said, it's Thanksgiving and it's like, there's no actual indigenous people, but like you were talking about, like indigenous people had a very special, unique relationship to the land and worked with it instead of against it. And colonial settlers did their best to work against the land. And that's why we have fucking climate change. (laughs) So, I mean, it's very apt because the Mi'kmaq indigenous people knew to leave this site alone and that it was this uh, force that was greater than them and they knew not to fuck with it. And Lewis and Judd are typical white men like fucking with this land that they're not really supposed to. Literally smoking butt after like just burying Marlboro butts into the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Just like the absolute disrespect of this site. Uh, So I did... I do think, I mean, and when you kind of look at these movies that use the Indian burial ground trope, I mean, you could see it as like an extended revenge fantasy. Oh, yeah. Which in that way is badass. <laughs> so, you know, when I look at it through that lens, I definitely don't feel bad for any, about anything that happens to these characters at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> I, I do I end up feeling bad for Judd. Yeah. But, you know, he also, yeah, he brought it upon himself. And, you know, again, just talk about hubris against the land. They also, this whole movie takes place, again, around a guy who bought a house, a site on the scene and next to a Mack truck superhighway with a pet and two small children. Right. Yeah, just the, the, yeah, like you said, hubris is the correct word. The absolute unabashed hubris. So Judd tells Lewis that he has to dig the burial hole himself because each buries his own. And he just sits on a rock and smokes cigarette after cigarette while Lewis uh, buries into this stony ground. Do you think that, like, what do you think they talked about while that was going on? I think they didn't talk about anything. I think it was just complete silence. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's really, um, you know, you know, just a little flavor for the audience here. Like, I, as, like, a New England woman who's, like, recently single, I realized that, uh, a big kind of stereotype with like New England dudes is that they can be silent for 12 hours and then just tell you what a bird is. <laughs> and it's kind of great. And like you, you know, like on the dating scene, sometimes I wonder what these guys are thinking about. And then I realize they're just sitting there and they're like, that's a bird. Right. And it's great. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I imagined would happen. And Judd tells Lewis to tell no one what they've done after they they come back from the burial ground and they're about to part ways. He says he can't tell anyone what happened here. And he also says the soil of a man's heart is stonier. Stonier. Which 
Okay, what do you think that means, Mercedes? Oof, okay. <laughs> um, yikes. I, I'm still thinking of that. Like, I've watched this movie so many times. And um, maybe it just means that, uh, that Judd's just a 420 enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, because the line is longer. I didn't transcribe the whole thing here. But first of all, Lewis is horrified, because this is what the ghost has said to him, what Pascal has said to him. Uh, but I guess what it means is, like, the soil of a man's heart is stonier. Like, it's harder to plant things in there. But once it's in there, it's it's there. That's – I love that. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll, I'll go with that, I'll yeah. I'll go with that, yeah. Uh, Lewis calls Ellie to talk to her, and she asks about church and asks him to <laughs> – Asks him to kiss church for her. And Lewis is like, is crying because this has been a traumatic day. His face has not changed at all. Yeah. But there's just like tears on it. Yeah. And he says, yuck, kiss your own cat. Yuck, kiss your own cat. Yeah. Just completely stone faced. Um, and he's, he's feeling all emotional talking to his children because he's experienced a lot of death recently and is presumably feeling his own mortality here too. So this is the other thing, the other theme I wanted to bring up, which is like faith versus science. And we've talked about this a little bit too. Like, is it at odds for a man of science like this to have a faith? And I think he, the character wrestles with that as well. Yeah. Again, like, you know, you lose it a little bit because uh, Zachary plays Lewis so straight, but I mean, he... Like, every time we kind of touch on the idea of faith with Lewis here, it's like he, he the answer he lands on is pretty non-committal. Or, yeah. or actually, maybe it's over-committal because one of the things that, uh, in, like, the sort of faith versus science question is, like, that we see with Lewis as a theme is that he promises things that he doesn't deliver over and over and over again. And essentially every claim that he makes to his family, from the second they walk into the house and he says, you're gonna we're going to, like, love it, to you know, promising Ellie that he's going to take care of her cat to promising that he won't go back uh, to the pet cemetery. Like these are just promises he makes, like he breaks over and over again. Right. And he just keeps having this idea that he can control his own destiny. But this, it's almost as if the wheels of this story were set in motion even before they arrived. Much like the wheels of the Mack truck. And much like the wheels of the Mack truck. <laughs> and the next day Lewis is in the garage and now a zombie church sneaks up on him and scares the shit out of him. I mean, zombie cat is a great theme. Love zombie cat. We love zombie cats. Uh, we are pro zombie cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, somehow the cat looks creepier. He's, uh, he smells really bad. They talk about that a lot. Yes. He stinks of the ground. They buried him in. <laughs> Sour. <laughs> and Lewis examines church who scratches him across the face. So we, you know, church is not the same, even though he always kind of sucked. Yeah. He was always a mean cat. Yeah. Is that new church behavior? I can't tell. Yeah. Also it gives Lewis just the coolest double scar. Yeah, it does. Lewis visits Judd and Judd tells the story of his dog spot who died. He got tangled in barbed wire and he died. Where? (laughs) And he buried him in the pet cemetery beyond. And his dog came back wrong and snuck up on his mother while she was hanging clothes. And she says, Judd, come get your dog. He stinks in the ground. You buried him in. Yeah, mom knew. 
Uh, moms always know. Yeah, I mean, mom is a salty New England broad. Yeah, know? she's been around this block before. She's killed off four zombie dogs yeah, already, totally. old Yeller style. Uh, yeah. But yeah, also I love that Judd, Kid Judd comes out of the house basically wearing the same outfit he's wearing as an yes, old man. he's never changed his outfit. And Lewis asks, has anyone ever buried a person up there? And Judd freaks out and spills his mug over and says, Christ on his throne, no. Do you get what was? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Judd was having his morning whiskey coffee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we know from that reaction that someone absolutely has buried a person up there. Uh, Lewis takes a sexy bath yeah. Also, just like again, in terms too. of like maybe the other theme, right? Of like this in many horror movies is white guys doing the least. Yeah. And Lewis makes himself the least of bath. It's just like no candles, overhead light, just plain water. Yeah, ew. <laughs> and uh, as he's relaxing in the tub, Church throws a dead rat in there. So Church is like spiteful now. Maybe he thought it was a bath bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel comes back with the kids, and Ellie says she had a dream about church, uh, that church died, and that he was buried in the pet cemetery. This is another theme, is Ellie is almost, like, kind of clairvoyant in this movie. Yeah, I will know it all. <laughs> and she says church smells. So that's another thing, is he stinks of the ground they buried him in. Yeah, the way that she says it, too, is, like... Honestly, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty body shaming towards church. Yeah, really. This is spoken by someone who just called a child an ugly Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Missy Dandridge commits suicide. Oh, yeah. We forgot about Missy again. Yeah, yeah, by hanging herself. What the fuck is the point of this scene? I mean, I know that it probably, it plays into, like, themes of death and control and agency, (sighs) for sure. I think it's a bit lost. Like, I don't think it's fully explored enough, but I guess then, because of her death, we have to have the funeral scene. That's true, yeah. And I think, you know, it's like, as you say that out loud, I'm realizing that like, I'm seeing, like, the meeting where they were saying, like, hey, you know, Stevie Baby, uh, <laughs> the big-time Hollywood producers were, like, you know, Missy, Missy's not making sense for us here. Like, can we cut her out? I, I see him turning to them and being like, well, how are we going to get to the funeral scene? There you go. Because she hangs herself, and then the next cut, Stephen King cameo is a minister at Missy's funeral. high priest, Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, Stephen King has his little moment in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of great Stephen King moments throughout, you know, throughout his films. This is maybe one of my favorite iterations of Stephen King because, like, uh, you know, he's probably just, like, grinning like a fool, walking around being like, can you, this guy, a priest, me, Stephen King? (laughs) Also, uh, fun flavor, uh, Stephen King is six foot four. Daddy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh... (laughs) (laughs) daddy king daddy king (laughs) he's my king yeah seriously uh is there like a station above a king a god (laughs) stephen god yeah stephen god the benevolent stephen king so stephen king is a daddy he's a weird nerd daddy yeah come to me guys Also, like, one thing that I think about, too, whenever I read or watch or kind of, like, consume anything by Stephen King is, like, so Stephen King is sort of known for having um, dabbled in, like, uh, 
the, uh, the cocaine arts. The cocaine arts. <laughs> just the dark or the light arts of cocaine. <laughs> the white magic, if you will. Um, and, you know, in terms of, like, trauma, like, every time Stephen King has done cocaine, he's probably looked in the mirror and seen the face of Stephen King looking back at him. Terrifying. Yeah, so, and then, you know, and, you know it's like, you know, after, I would be so curious to hear what you think about, like, kind of, like, the spookiness of Maine, because I think a lot about doing drugs and kind of seeing what you see in Maine and how that translates to something. Yeah, I mean, doing coke in a big city like New York is very different than doing coke in Maine and, like, holding up in your house and writing a book. Yeah. It's like, it's just a very uh, different kind of feel to it. Yeah, different sort of fear. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, I like I see something spooky here. It's, like, mildly high or stone sober every day that, like, kind of sticks on me. Uh, I can't imagine upping the stimuli at all. Um, the first time I traveled here, I was going down a back road, and I, there was just a sign written in red paint that said bloodworms, like, oh. <laughs> the only thing it said was bloodworms. There was, like, so high on the sign. It was written in red paint, and the D was backwards. Oh. And if I was on coke, I would say, yeah, there's a hundred monsters, and they're all after me. Yeah, I mean, or you would just be like, this is the fucking coolest thing ever. I gotta put it in my fucking book. <laughs> Blast the Ramones. <laughs> yeah. So what is the difference between Stephen King's drunk books and his cokehead books? Well, I think you you never know until you get there. <laughs> and for me, um, I'm always, I always enter a Stephen King story wondering, is were these the drunk years and were these the coke years? Um Secret, the, the story Secret Window movie uh, famously starring Johnny Depp, who is cool, a Stephen King cool guy because he has Mountain Dew and eats Doritos for breakfast, um, is mostly just Johnny Depp sleeping on a couch and hating his wife. And you look at that and you're like, oh, that was the alcohol years. This is definitely the Coke years. And I think the Coke years... Well, was the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help. Uh, you know, uh, Stephen King was still coming off Ronald Reagan, uh, <laughs> as we all were. Uh, <laughs> He's very political on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, it's like... The way that I kind of thought a Stephen King Coke movie is when there's 18 storylines that all start... And just keep going. Mm. Um, and then don't have anything to do with the ending. And I think that Pet Cemetery is a pretty good example where, you know, again, we forget about Missy or we forget about Pascal or we forget about, like, mm. uh, church because there's just, there's a lot going on. Yeah, there is a lot going on in this movie. So Judd delivers some more wisdom where he says, God sees the truth but waits. And he says, how's your cat, Lewis? And Lewis is like, it's Ellie's cat. He says... It's your cat now. <laughs> uh, Ellie asks Lewis if he thinks Missy went to heaven. And Lewis is honest. And he says he doesn't know. Which mm -hmm. I think is the best way for parents to respond is to be honest. And he explains that different people believe different things. And he says that he believes when people die, they go on in some way. But we're very unconvinced. I think, I feel like he's saying that because he doesn't want to upset his kid. Yeah, well... Also, like, even, even if we take, like, the, like, a more, like, the more Lewis being sincere reason, because uh, he looks at his zombie cat, he basically says, yes, and I know this, because I now know that zombies exist. Yeah, I. exactly. He's not saying, he just says, we go on. Yeah. He doesn't say, like, we go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but that shuts the kid up. So. Yeah, he shuts her up. And, uh, 
Rachel cries. She overhears this conversation and she cries. And I, my note here is they maybe should have discussed how to have these conversations with their children ahead of also, time. Also, like another thing that, like, you know, for all of Ellie's uh, kind of um, failings as a child, she has some dope outfits uh, <laughs> in this scene. And she is a smart kid. She's a smart kid, but she's a smart kid who talks like a 50 year old man, which is like, very disturbing to hear. Yeah. Um, but she also, in this scene, I uh, wrote down that she is wearing a pajama shirt that said, cute as a button. Yeah, and that's has a good shirt. hanging pigtails of buttons. Yes, there was, this was a big thing in the late 80s, early 90s. I had shirts like this too, where there was like stuff coming off the shirt. Yeah, this girl dresses like a YouTube choreographer. <laughs> <laughs> uh Rachel confronts Lewis about the death conversation and says that she's she the reason she has a hard time with it is because she's really scared of death and because of the death of her sister Zelda. Oh god, I forgot about Zelda <laughs> who dies of who died of spinal meningitis when Rachel was 8 years old and she died in the back bedroom like a dirty secret. And her parents just kind of kept her back there. And we see it, scenes of Rachel feeding Zelda as a child. And she's like this deformed monster. Yeah. For some reason, Rachel can only feed her like pea soup too. Yeah. Um, and she confesses that she wanted Zelda to die because she was a burden, which of course she did as a kid. Yeah. But she feels really guilty about it because she hasn't processed it in therapy or anything. <laughs> And her parents left her alone with her when she died. Like, who eat, leaves an eight-year-old alone with a... Oh, we don't even know how old Zelda was, but she was dying of spinal meningitis. And she feels guilty because she hated her and she wanted her to die. And she says when she did die that she ran through the house crying, but that she thinks maybe if she wasn't crying, she was laughing. So she's very traumatized by this event. There are random children in the house. And yeah, oh god. I feel yes. like there must be like a deleted scene or something where that's explained. Yeah, the director's cut. Oh god, they were waiting for the DVDs to be invented so they could put in the bonus features. Yeah, I don't know what these kids are doing there. <laughs> these kids are just like, hey, we're just here for March of Dimes. <laughs> uh, so that... The, the scenes with Zelda are so deeply disturbing. Yeah, and again, this is another kind of, like, interesting, like, novel versus, like, film adaptation. Because, again, in a novel, you have, like, chapters and chapters and chapters to kind of explain the complexities of someone living with bile meningitis and being, like, the other sister in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it is more explored in the book for my in my memory. Um, like, there are scenes, there are chapters from Rachel's POV so there's scenes before even they get to her talking about Zelda to her husband where, you know, she's thinking of the memories. Yeah, but in the the way that it translates to this movie is so kind of disturbing because it takes like this, like kind of like emotional complexity out of it. And it's like, all right, we're going to like fit everything. It's played purely for horror. And I mean, the other thing is like, has she never told her husband about this? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like so in the in the movie, the remake they do handle this a bit better where he knows all kind of already about what happened. But I guess like this family also met each other again. They materialized on the lawn. So they have a little catching up to do. 
And Lewis says that he hates her parents even more now and that she never should they never should have left an eight-year-old in charge of her dying sister. And Fair. She was, yeah, and she was also clinically insane at that point. <laughs> so I also looked up if spinal meningitis does make you insane, and apparently it does because uh, your spine is directly connected to your brain stem. So uh, that that's accurate. Um, so... Rand, there's a next scene is a random truck driver that we don't know, so we're like something bad's gonna happen. Yeah, this kid's a real punk rocker. Yeah, he's blasting the Ramones. Sheena is a punk rocker. Honestly, though, like in terms of just like kind of actually <laughs> to like your color a little bit earlier, like uh, this is definitely feels like they just found a guy in Maine. Like, yeah, they pulled some guy like hanging outside of a gas station. They were like, "Get in the truck." Uh, You're listening to the Ramones today. Uh, yeah, because this dude is a salty Mainer. Like, yeah, huge trucker cap. Like, has had a diet of like beer and just like cigarette port like poor cigarettes for like the last like twenty years until he got behind this truck to yeah, be a and he's singing along to Sheena is a punk rocker, like very enthusiastically, not really paying attention. And the family is having a picnic with Judd on their lawn. Lucky them. <laughs> I wish I could have a picnic with Judd. And flying in a kite Oh, I just got a bunch of Tinder matches from Portland, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> and Gage is very cute flying this kite. And when he, he drops it and the kite starts to, like, roll towards the road. And the family turns their back to him for some God-known reason. Yeah, how also, yeah, this, like, really shows, like, kind of, like, the, uh, the, sim- the simple minds of this newly found family. Uh, I mean, this is the second time. This is the second time. And also, they are watching each other fly a kite. Like, But they won't watch the kid with the, like... Yeah. <laughs> They're watching this kite with rapt attention, as like as if uh, they had grown up without radio. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so the kite rolls into the road, and there's this really difficult scene where Gage gets run over by a truck. Yeah, in terms of, like... It's, like, no matter how many times I watch this scene and, like, know it's coming, like, this is, like, a real eye-closer scene for me. It's horrific. I remember even watching it for the first time in middle school with one of my best friends, and we literally, like, a movie held each other and, like, pushed our faces together, and we were, like, screaming as the scene was happening. Well, and I, you know, I I envy anyone who, um who watches this movie sort of like unspoiled by anything that's happening in it. Cause that, that to see that for the first time, uh, you know, unless you knew it was coming, you'd never expect it because it's like, you know, again, not only do you not kill kids in movies, right. You don't kill like this, this kind of perfect kid who all he does is like hug his parents and tell them that he loves them. Yeah. I mean, he's the sweetest little cherub and, this, I mean, this is this also gets into why this movie is subversive, which that it kills animals and children indiscriminately, and even as you and I, seasoned horror veterans, are still disturbed by the death of this cute little boy, <laughs> uh, Lewis falls to the ground screaming in agony, and then we get to sort of the aftermath of Gage's death. Yeah. And this is when I had my note here that Judd is looking hot. Let's be <laughs> honest about it. <laughs> Judd, same overalls, but it's just, just 
an even uh, even more masculine and kind of seasoned energy. Yeah, totally. Judd is, like, Judd is so hot in this movie yeah. that he looks like he would be good at missionary position. <laughs> I mean, he's wearing that white Henley. Yeah, I... I with his uh, overall... If Judd ever, ever asked me what I wanted, I'd say more of the same old, same old, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Judd Fox. Judd Fox. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's the major. There's going to be a meta theme of this movie. Yeah, I think I really firmly believe that Judd eats pussy. Yeah. But in, like, a very noble way. <laughs> like, like, Judd would eat your pussy because you work hard. Yeah, Judd would eat your pussy also because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if there's any Judds in the audience, uh, come hit me up in Portland, May. <laughs> R.I.P. Fred Gwynn. We're oh sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, Fred Gwynn passed away four years after this movie was released. He lo- amazed, like, never looked better. You, he looks great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, you know, not to know hetero the situation, but, you know, even as a homosexual woman I think he looks good yeah you he know, could get it he could get it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Lewis is looking at pictures of Gage and Judd is at the house helping which you know it's also heartwarming Judd is like a real neighbor to them and Ellie thinks God can make Jet Gage come back and is like screaming about it and she's like, I'm going to wait for Gage to come back until God decides to bring him back. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, I think maybe, like, the thing that's, like, disturbing about Ellie is, like, she's, like, saying these kind of, like, these really kind of, like, high, high-stake things about God. Like, really kid-discovering God in a way that a 50-year-old man discovers God. Um you know, and kind of having these, like, arguments with God, but she's doing it in a way where she's, like, mad that her mom won't buy her a toy at the checkout line. Yeah, she's, like, oh, like, when she's talking about if church is gonna die, she's, like, he's not God's cat, he's my cat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ellie, you have no idea. (laughs) And maybe, yeah, it was, you know, honestly, in terms of, like, spoiling your kid, it was wrong of these parents to not teach Ellie the hard lesson that that, that cat's not going to really show up for her much. Uh, no, and also that your cat dies. Your cat dies. They probably just didn't want to deal with her temper tantrum afterwards. Totally, because she sucks. Uh, <laughs> at the funeral, uh, Rachel's father verbally attacks Lewis. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. This can scene we, is chaos. Yeah, we need to talk about this scene yeah. for a moment, because... This is the worst thing that could happen at a child's funeral. I mean, a child's funeral is already one of the most depressing things. Yeah, if a child's funeral, like, goes well, it's still a massively depressing event. And a horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this went, this went as bad as a child's funeral could go without another child dying in the process. Totally. Um, and so the, the father, this fuck, verbally attacks Lewis and then, like, physically attacks him and punches him in the face and kicks him to the ground. And they knock the coffin over and Gage's arm flaps out of the coffin. <laughs> the father basically, like, runs into Lewis, like, to headbutt him yep. into his child's casket. And Lewis loses it because it's like, he never liked this guy and he's... Ultimately, like they lost a grandchild, but Lewis lost his child. Yeah, and we um and we really I think we really kind of visualize that when 
Gage's coffin breaks open and we just see his tiny child hand <laughs> in a tiny child's suit. And Lewis is the only person who catches that. Yes, and it lo- he loses it and he attacks the father back. Yeah, uh, no one's going back to the house for canapes after that. <laughs> yeah, the funeral's pretty much over. It's pretty much done. Um, okay. Oh, so that night, Ellie insists again that God could bring Gage back if he wanted to. Church is... Uh, it, Lewis goes to check on Rachel, uh, and Church is, like, resting on Rachel's stomach. She's sleeping, and he's uh, growling at Lewis as if, like, guarding her. And Judd knows Lewis is thinking of burying Gage at the burial ground. And Judd admits in this very creepy story that someone did bury a person there once. A local boy uh, named, was it Timmy? Oh, yeah. It, it was Timmy or Billy. It was or, Timmy or Jimmy. Timmy or Jimmy. It was the name of a kid who went to war in like, yeah, the 40s. Yeah. And he, he was a local boy who was killed on his way home from World War II. And Bummer. It was really tragic. And his father buried him, and he came back as this monstrous thing, as the zombie. And people would see him around town, wandering around town. And uh, this woman, one of the, the women came to us menfolk. That's literally what he says. And, you know, insisted that they had to end it. So... They, some Judd and some of the other local menfolk burned down Timmy's house because he was an abomination and he needed to go. It was a sad thing, but it was the right thing. It, when you have to choose between the two, you choose the hard thing. <laughs> and he also says another iconic line, sometimes dead is better. Dead is better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, matter of fact. You know, and like, again, like, Judd is such a real person. Um, my grandmother is 89 and really kind of coming to terms with her own death right now. Uh, and in a way that very much like an 89 year old woman would. And like the practicality that she is handling it with is insane to me. Mm-hmm. Like I um, I was, I had a work call at her house one day and I was sitting on the kitchen table. And I looked down and I just saw her will and testament like next to me, like her last rites, uh, next to the postcard she was mailing out. And it's just very casual and people that, you know, no, right. So Judd also cries. Poor Judd. He gets really vulnerable in this moment, and he says the cemetery made Gage die because he showed Lewis the burial ground. He cried because of his guilt. Yeah, he cries because of his guilt, and because he believes that the burial ground is this sentient, evil place that makes because he knows the land. He knows the land. Yeah, he's more connected to the land. This is why I also feel like it made him bury church there. To set off this chain of events. So Rachel and Ellie are off to Chicago. And Ellie had a bad dream about Gage and someone named Pascal. But he's, but she says Pascal. So the, this corpse is visiting Ellie now in her dreams. And Lewis goes to dig up Gage while Rachel and Ellie are in Chicago. And Pascal comes to him and tells him not to do it and that the barrier was never meant to be crossed. So in Chicago, Ellie is having nightmares about Pascal, who is saying Lewis is going to do something bad. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's a real New England ghost story. Yeah. 
I love it. Pasco is such a great friend, too. Pasco, that actor is really good in this. Yeah. Um, he's one of the best, like, the, the, the side characters are the best in this movie. Like, Pascal, Judd, Missy. Yeah, you know, you know when you, like, listen to an album and just, like, every song is, like, a banger. It's just, like, hit after hit after hit. That's kind of how the side characters are in this movie. Like, another one comes on and you're like, hell yeah, play it again. Yeah, (laughs) they're, they're all really good and colorful. And Rachel is sort of, like... She's not seeing Pascal, but she's kind of hearing him subconsciously talking to her. And uh, he t- she he talks to Rachel and kind of relays that Lewis can talk to him because uh, he was there when his soul discorporated, like left his body. Uh, great and, word, too. Yeah, great word. Also, there's this creepy ass painting in Rachel's parents' house, which is like a fat baby yeah <laughs> in a dress and like yes a, like a very puritan's blue coat yeah with a little cane it does i don't understand and it, it. And it has gray cat oh yeah it's another harbinger yes it's a harbinger the, literally the creepiest harbinger because we um well i won't jump the gun here but we we revisit it later and they really make sure to include that painting in a lot of shots they sure do so rachel calls judd because she's freaked out um, about Lewis being alone. They all are sort of feeling this telepathic, clairvoyant energy. And Judd is, you know, he's like, Lewis isn't with you. You know, he's freaked out. Yeah. Because he knows. Because he has a sense of purpose. Yes. And he also knows that Lewis is thinking about burying Gage in the cemetery. And now Lewis is actually digging up Gage and he's really manic about it. And he says, you know, I promise you we're going to get you back. He's talking to Gage. So this is, again, these broken promises yeah. that Lewis keeps making to his family. And in the face of something greater than him, he can't promise anything. He really can't. And that's this is another thing that we have to accept about the human condition, is that we can't really ever make any promises. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, that... Um... You know, kind of tying that to, back to the concept of like, you know, New England and um, and the history here, like that's been kind of like a running theme, like in terms of like puritanical values, because Puritans believed that like people, like the 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 good actions of people wasn't what led them to heaven. They were like kind of chosen from the start to go to heaven, and some were and some weren't, and you didn't know who it was. Um, so you kind of just had to like mm. live your life in this good faith, hoping that maybe you were chosen. Mm. Um, but ultimately, like you didn't have control over your like pathway into heaven. So nihilistic. Yeah, yeah. The Puritans, uh, Puritans were pretty creepy. <laughs> when want to hang? Like if I like met a group of Puritans, I wouldn't like want to hang out with them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty creepy. Um, I mean, New England has, like, that energy to it when you're here. I mean, it's just so – the history of it is so tied up in how you interact with the land and the people here. And And then the city slicker from Chicago comes in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Totally. And thinks that he can tame this horrifying history – and make these promises that he can't really keep. I mean, we can't ever really keep our promises. We can do our best, but, you know, as you know, like, often people will get in relationships and they'll say, I'm never going to leave you. (laughs) Because we were just talking about this and I've had the same experience. 
And uh, they can't really promise that because yeah. whether they leave you by choice or by death, you can't make that promise. Yeah. I mean, all you can do is kind of just uh, go hang on, go hang on your neighbor's porch yeah. <laughs> and accept for the best. <laughs> yeah. You can sit on a, you know, in New England, you can sit on a porch and you can hope for the best, but the view's really nice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Chicago, Rachel's having a time and having visions of Zelda, who says, I'm coming for you, Rachel. Yeah, you know, it's like, in terms of, like, I think there's, like, what, like, three or four scenes with Zelda. Like, Zelda's a very short-lived character in this movie. But she somehow gets creepier every single time. Really creepy. And she says, she's, I'm coming for you, Rachel, and this time I'll get you. Gage and I will get you for letting us die. At this point, she's also so mangled that her, like, arms are inside out and her back is, like, backwards. Well, I also think that this might be an exaggeration that this is how Rachel saw her when she was a kid. Oh, yeah, no. And then that's, like, what I trans like, with, like, the creepiness factor. It's, yeah. like... Rachel's memories of her get more and more traumatized every single time. Totally. There's a funny moment with Rachel, because Rachel gets on a plane. There's a funny moment with Rachel and Pascal on the plane. <laughs> Pascal's, like, sitting in one of the seats, like, ready to fly. And Rachel rushes home to Lewis. Lewis goes to bury Gage at the burial ground, which is now very spooky. And, okay, what the fuck is that face that, like, launches up at Lewis from a rock? Oh, like, yeah. Lewis has this vision of this face that, like, launches towards him. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be Pascal, but also, like, because of genius editing, it could be anybody. Maybe it could be us. Maybe we're asking him to stop. Totally. <laughs> yeah, and Pascal was trying to get Rachel back because he's trying to help them. Yeah, again, really, you know, as someone who has found it very hard to make friends as an adult, I think that Lewis really takes advantage of, like, the emotional labor of his friendships. <laughs> Pascal is such a good friend. And driving back, Rachel's car, car stalls, and Pascal tries to tell her that the cemetery is trying to stop her because uh, it's trying to keep this chain of events going. Uh Gage rises from the ground and comes back to the house, takes a scalpel from Lewis's doctor bag and goes to Judd's house. And Gage hides under the bed and uh, Judd and slices Judd's Achilles oh, tendon. Oh, God, yeah. It's, I it's, it's absolutely brutal. In terms of just, like, horror, like, jump scare things that, like, really freak me out, cutting of ankles is, like... Like, you can't see me. I'm just shaking my arms all over. Like, oh please God, stop no. it. It's so, it's so scary. It's gross. And it's like one of the first moments of true horror in the movie, even though the whole, it's a horror movie and it happens really late in the movie. Yeah. I mean, the Zelda stuff is really scary. Yeah, but it's definitely, I mean, I feel like the first two thirds of this movie are really eerie and yeah. then it gets really spooky. Yeah, and really um, brutal. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, it's definitely a horror movie. Um, but, yeah, also, it's, it's just in terms of, like, horror images, it's very weird to see a baby's fingers run a scalpel. Yeah, I mean, Miko Hughes is great in the last part of this movie as a zombie baby. Like, really, really good. I hope you're still working, Miko Hughes. Yeah, Miko, if you're out there. <laughs> And he slices Judd's mouth, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then feeds on his neck flesh. Um, he's really good at playing a zombie. Yeah. Rachel hitches with... So Judd is gone. R.I.P. R.I.P. Not forgotten. 
Rachel hitches with a trucker and finally gets back to the house, and Pascal tells her he's got to leave for good End now. of the line. This is the end of the line for him. And she hears Gage's laughter coming from Judd's house and goes inside, and she has a vision of Zelda in Judd's room, who says she's going to twist her back like hers, so she'll never get out of bed again. <laughs> never get out of bed again! <laughs> And Zelda then morphs into zombie Gage, who is dressed like the creepy painting. Yes! In callback! Yeah, where did he get that outfit? <laughs> I actually, I realized that in my personal wardrobe, I could recreate that outfit. Oh my god, please do it for Halloween. <laughs> Good, great idea. He does an, um, just like uh, a flirty little 1940s dance around the house. Yes, in his, with his little cane. And... Uh, Okay, and he kills Rachel off screen, right? Because Rachel goes to embrace him, but he's a zombie. Lewis then falls out of bed in an extremely comical manner <laughs> the next morning and sees uh, dirty footprints everywhere. Gage the way that he falls out of bed is like the song A Perfect Day could have accompanied that bedfall. It was like <laughs> the beginning of a romantic comedy. Yeah. Like, Whoop. <laughs> uh, how is this guy still single? He's a doctor. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he gets a calling over to Walt, uh, to, I, oh, fun fact, I, for some reason, I have always remembered Judd as being named Walter, and oh, this, yeah. I've talked about this movie incorrectly a ton, it's like a weird brain spot I have, but he goes over to Judd's house to, uh... Yeah, well, first he gets a phone call from Rachel's father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, again, who, you know, they don't have a, the best relationship, and, uh, you know, the father is like, did Rachel get there okay? And Lewis is like, fuck, because Rachel never got there, he didn't even know she was coming, and, you know, he, Ellie had a dream that her mother was dead and wants to talk to her, so Lewis is unsettled and he hangs up on the father and then the phone rings again and it's Gage and it's Gage saying first I played with Judd then mommy came and I played with her now I want to play with you <laughs> just like a mouthful of spittle when he says it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I play with you so uh, Lewis arms himself with a syringe filled with something and he distracts church the cat church yeah steak a raw steak it's amazing you know that this college doctor on thanksgiving had just a couple of like syringes full of poison and a raw steak in the fridge yeah he had a raw steak i don't know if it's thanksgiving anymore is it, it oh. is it like been a year no well because when he goes up to kill church oh yes he says yeah, yeah. so it's been like a year or something since the last thanksgiving and he he gives steak he gives church this steak this raw steak and he says it's thanksgiving day for cats that have come back from the dead yes. it's and a very it's mean it's a very specific thanksgiving yes. i guess right and he shoots him with some kind of syringe full of something and it kills him and he goes inside and has a vision that the house is all burnt up like the one from judd's story and he finds judd's body and he also finds Rachel hanging from the attic ceiling where Gage descends on him <laughs> and attacks him with a scalpel. And Lewis injects him with the same thing he did to church and Gage cries out like a normal baby. Yeah. And it breaks Lewis. Yeah, he... You can see him snapping. You see the face of a man who has watched his kid die twice. Yep. I mean, it's really brutal. Like, it's... Yeah. 
it's a, it's a hard moment and you, you feel, I mean, the actor does it so like is really deadpan through most of the movie, but the moments where he's feeling his, his mortality and where he's feeling for his children are really striking and are his best parts of acting in the movie. Yeah. I wonder if he, I wonder if it was like a choice to play everything so deadpan. So you pay attention. To yeah, those. it's possible. Uh, he burns down Judd's house, and there's a shot of a baby burning, of Cage's body burning. A totally just necessary shot. I need to see this baby die one more time. Yes. <laughs> he really hate, hammers it home. <laughs> he carries Rachel's body off, and Pascal appears to him again and implores him not to bury her at the cemetery. And Lewis is like manic at this point. Oh yeah. I mean, his entire life is over. All he has left is Ellie. Fucking Ellie. Yeah. Uh, and Lewis says it'll be different this time because he waited too long with Gage. Another has, broken promise. Another broken promise. Yeah. He buries Rachel. And then we hear this Judd voiceover about like the, the heart being stonier. A man tends to it. Plants there. Man plants his heart in the stone and he waits for the corn to grow. <laughs> And Lewis sits and waits with his card deck. And originally, the ending was supposed to be that Lewis was just, like, sitting and playing solitaire by himself, waiting for Rachel to come back. And Rachel comes in the door and it ends there. Mm. But they didn't feel like it was scary enough for a horror movie. Yeah. So, uh... Rachel comes home with, like, one high-heeled shoe on. In one eye. One eye. Limps over to him. There's amazing practical effects with her oozing eye. Oh, yeah. This is, like, where it gets, like, super, super spooky. Yeah. And they kiss passionately. A lover's kiss. Yeah. Uh, as and they, she picks up an, a knife and then Lewis screams off camera. And then the Ramon song, Pet Cemetery Plays. And yeah, and it, I I can't imagine that it ending a better way. the The scene of her like holding the knife is so striking, and like I think by kind of using such like sort of like a you know such a symbol like the like the butcher's knife like in the air in the eighties was such like a symbol of like eighties horror. To kind of end on that note makes you realize how subversive the whole film has been up until that point because we that's the first time we see anything like that. Yeah, I mean it's. There's a lot of deep themes going on here, and it really is really it is horrific. The imagery is really horrific, and uh, that's Pet Cemetery. So I feel like we picked this movie clean apart. <laughs> Do you have any other closing thoughts you want to add here? Um, you know, honestly, just like as someone who's like kind of been living in Maine, like I really want to say that it, I really appreciate how true it is to like the sort of aura of living here. Um, and like, you know, I, like as someone who's like written for movies, like I see, like I see so much of Maine and how sort of cinematic it is. And I feel like the film actually really captures some of that in a way that I haven't seen in other Stephen King movies before. Yeah, I mean, Maine is always another is a character in Stephen King movie, and I originally was going to have us do Misery or even Dolores Claiborne, the great Kathy Bates in both of those, but I think that this is a really appropriate movie for us to do, and uh, it's there's such just so many themes of choice and agency, specifically having to do with the history of. New England and Puritan faith. And I guess I'm also reminded of 
the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. And the Customs House when uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne is, you know, detailing, discovering this history and talking about free will and agency and, and faith and the scary landscape of New England. Well, out here in New England, we have a lot of time to sit on our porch and think about these things. <laughs> So, uh, Mercedes, where can people find you on social media if you want them to? Uh, I guess you can add me on Instagram. Um, I'm at (laughs) Mercedes.Benz. And uh, thank you so much for joining me, Mercedes. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. And you can find... Oh, go ahead. I I was going to say, I think it was destiny. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it worked out remarkably well doing this movie for this trip. So... I just love doing, like, on-location movies. (laughs) On-location episodes. So, as always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as GirlsGutsJalo. You can also find my Patreon. I'm about to, uh, if we have time, record a bonus episode for the Patreon with Mercedes on Midsommar. So you definitely want to check that out. Uh, It's patreon.com slash GirlsGutsJalo. And you can also send me an email at GirlsGutsJalo at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Annie Rose. Malamet. See you next Friday. Under the outdoor with the steamboats, ancient goblins and wild oats. Come at the grand line making a sound. The smell of death is all around. And at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares, nobody knows. I don't want to be buried in a bed. Cemetery